Let's just review. Now, by the way, everybody raise your right hand and repeat after me. I promise I will love Pastor Mike after we're done tonight. The next four chapters are the most debated in the entire book of Revelation and perhaps the most debated in the entire Bible. I do not have answers for the next four chapters. Uh, I will tell you where I land, and there's one spot I just tell you uh, where I've landed is I haven't landed it. I'm still kind of circling and trying to, trying to figure it out. I just want to be honest with you and where I am and my understanding. But again, this is, not a, this is not a theological treaty on eschatology. This is an exegetical approach to the book of Revelation. Taking the book of Revelation as John, uh, as best we can, my basic premise is that John was writing to his audience who was undergoing persecution to give them encouragement as well as it revealed Jesus Christ. It's also my premise that the Holy Spirit of God has this book to encourage and inspire Christians, not only of that day, but of every age. And so we're approaching the heart of Revelation. And that's chapters, chapter 12 through 14 is the, is the heart. Yeah, the one in your left hand is, is great. And uh, from here to there, there's a lot of opinions, books, seminars, conferences, to even radio shows. I'm driving this week, and I just was bored with um, Detroit sports radio right now because it's like if we win, they're critical. If we lose, they're critical. And so I was just channel surfing. And when I was channel surfing, I heard of the Prophecy Club. Anybody ever heard of the Prophecy Club? And so I gave the Prophecy Club a listen. And, uh, and this guy, here was his definition of prophecy. That God still foretells the future and he does so in a dream as long as somebody else confirms that God gave you a dream to confirm his dream that he dreamed. And so he did. And in his story, he, he came up with a, a story that was really close to uh, Joseph's account where there would be seven years of feast and seven years of famine. And so he says, here's what God told me to tell you. And I'm really just kind of perking up my ears because we're, we're in Revelation and last week was waiting. I mean, it, it, that, that, that text, I'm telling you, I'll talk about it in just a second, was so heavy for me to study digest internalize and give back absolutely incredible so i'm sitting here thinking this guy man if he's got a word from god i i want to hear and uh and here was his and i only remember the first three and there was four because i turned it off by the time he got to the to the fourth one and he said good times are ahead and i'm thinking the vote is a week from Tuesday, I don't see good times with anybody. Then he said um, that there will be uh, lots of money. And he just kept going on the prosperity gospel theme that everybody ought to be rich, everybody ought to be happy, everybody ought to be healthy, everybody ought to do this, everybody ought to do that. Um, and then the third one is, he said, God told me to tell everybody, go get a gun. Now, I'm thinking if everybody's happy and everybody's got money and everybody's always happier when you got money, why do you need a gun? And I just went click and, uh, and, and turned it off. 
I do think prophecy is hard to understand because we deal with apocalyptic language and uh, symbolic languages that we don't read otherwise. So let me give you some, uh, about six things to help you, guidelines for reading the book of Revelation. We did this all the way back when we did the introduction uh, about four weeks ago. Read the Revelation, book of Revelation with humility. It's the apocalypse. It's one unveiling. It's one, it's, it's one just kind of vision. It's not uh, there, there's multiple scenes, but it's one unveiling, it's one pulling back of the curtain. And read it with humility. Read it with the fact that God has new things to teach us as we read this wonderful book. And then second, number two, is try to discover the message to the original readers. To the original readers. Again, we, take, we look at 666... Because we'll talk about that next week. But we look 666 and we say that is the mark of the beast. And we see that as a future event. However, if you were in John's day, there, were num there was a number of Caesars going all the way back to Nero that you would have called the beast because of their persecution on the church. And certainly Domitian, who was Caesar when John was writing, would fall in that category. And so... Try to discover what it would meant to the original readers. By the way, John was a scholar in Old Testament knowledge. Matter of fact, in the chapters we're going to talk about tonight, uh, I read in one of the commentaries this week that there are over 15 allusions or references back to the Old Testament and basically about 20-something, almost 30 verses Number three is don't try to discover a strict chronological map of future events. John's purpose is not to give you an eschatological timeline. John's purpose was to, to address the seven churches of Asia and to write to the Christians and to encourage them in their persecution. Take Revelation seriously, but don't always take it literally. Now that is always a hard statement for me to take. I have such a high standard and high conviction about God's word. When Blake, I took him to the airport. I'll get, I think I told you this, but when I took him to the airport and, and I'm just like wrapping everything up and I'm just praying, God, what do you want me to tell my son before he lives? And I, I tell him two things. And the last one, I said, son, just every day, make sure you land your feet passionately in God's word. And I have such high respect for me to say, read it, because I was taught it's literal interpretation. But we also understand you interpret according to the uses of language. For example, if we say that somebody is wise as a owl, well, how do you and I know an owl is really wise? An owl has never taken a test. An owl has never driven a car. I mean, you know, never jumped on the internet. I mean, how, how do we know it? It's just a saying that means, you know, sharp as a tack. Well, that would be, you know, if your child was sharp as a tack, you know. Yeah, ouch. You know, and so we want to interpret according to the rules of language that it was originally written in. The book of Revelation was written in an apocalyptic, symbolic style. So when it's literal, 
and the use is literal, you, you run with literal interpretation. Where it's symbolic, then you run with the symbolism or the apocalyptic literature. Now, sometimes you have to make a choice whether it, it is literal or symbolic. For example, almost every number in the, in the book of Revelation, you've got to choose, is it a statistic or is it a symbol? Almost every number, is it a statistic or is it a symbol? And then kind of branches, you know, just kind of out from there. We'll talk about that in just a minute. The numbers can either be a statistic or a symbol. Okay? And you got to make that decision. So that's the, then number five, I guess, is pay close attention to John's, uh, when John identifies an image. And we're going to talk about four images tonight and uh, two next week. All right? And then look at the Old Testament and the historical context of the book with interpreting images and symbols because John, again, is just heavy, heavy, heavy into the Old Testament. He is a brilliant scholar on the Old, on the Old Testament. The Old Testament was their Bible. We tend to live more in the New and are a little more familiar with the New. And so those are the, the things that I would give you. Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 8. And the six trumpet judgments. And I believe that's one of the most ghastly and terrible, uh, terribly sad texts in all the Bible. In fact, I'd say that it's the most grave and shocking text in all of the Bible. Quite honestly, I wish I didn't have to teach it. Uh, it's very, very serious text. So I went home last Wednesday night. Man, my heart was just heavy. Because there was little grace in the text we studied last night. And I believe that God and Jesus Christ are, is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness and love and of hope. And you did not see any of that last week. Matter of fact, the most you could see was maybe a hint of grace when a third of the earth and a third of the sea and a third of the water and a third of whatever was, uh, was identified. So I went home last Wednesday night and I just kind of needed to breathe. Just kind of needed to go, whew. And so... Uh, to lighten my heart a bit, so I popped a bag of popcorn, and I thought, I'm going to watch a movie. 300 channels, there wasn't a decent movie to watch, and I thought, well, you know, I'll watch Frank and Mike on the American Pickers. And lo and behold, on the History Channel, here's what was on Doomsday. It's a series, History Channel. Doomsday, 10 Ways the World Will End. And the first one I watched was, listen to that, the first one I watched was uh, Gamma Rays. Two stars collide. The, the resulting impetus is that these gamma rays, you know, are just hurled at the earth, causes all kinds of devastation. It was absolutely incredible. It was like almost reading the sealed judgments in Revelation 6. And then the next one was a solar flare. A solar flare, and they think that the last huge solar flare that knocked out everything was right before uh, the electricity and the industrial age took over back in the 1850s. And they said if a solar flare were to happen today, and I'm thinking, I wonder if that was what John saw, the fiery star from the, from the heavens. And then the next one was nuclear war. And then the last one I watched was on asteroid. When, if, a, if an asteroid the size of the one that they believed caused the dinosaurs to be extinct 66 million years ago, 
By the way, I do not hold to that view, and I do not hold to evolution. I think Noah's flood had a lot more to do with that than anything else. But, but if this asteroid, of, and there's people who study this seven miles long, and just what it would do to the Earth if an asteroid, and then they made this statement that it was like 100,000 tons of space debris and asteroids you know, enter the Earth's atmosphere every day. I'm going, holy smokes. I think that was the right number. I didn't write it down. I was just, by this time, it's 2 in the morning. And I'm still watching Doomsday. Eating every comfort food I could find in the, in, in the kitchen. And I'm telling you, when, when, when the one, and you jump on the History Channel, if you can watch it or, or pull it up or whatever, it, it, and, and just have your Bible open to Revelation. And I don't, I'm not saying that these are astrophysicists. These are people who study these kind of things. And I'm telling you, they had it down, and, and they never quoted the Bible. And, and basically, they were, were going on that if an asteroid hits and falls to the stars, then basically, and if you remember, you know, a third of the Earth is scorched with, with fire. And they started talking about if it hit, one of the first things that would happen is intense heat. And they started how, talking about how leaves would just burst into fire, wouldn't catch fire. They would just burst into flames on the edge of the branches because of the intent heat, almost like spontaneous, and they, they, because of the, the heat. And if you're outside, you just are instamatically, instamatically, instantly just, and it just goes on. And it talks about how the, how the sky is darkened. Remember, a third of the, everything gets darkened because of the, the dust and, and the ash and the fresh water and the salt water. And they talk about the tsunamis and the earthquakes. And then they talk about how people will run into the caves. Isn't that incredible? Now, am I saying that they are proving the book of Revelation? Nope. Am I saying that the Revelation is saying an asteroid? No, I'm just saying that when you read that kind of stuff and you watch that kind of stuff, it, it is kind of, you know, it, it just, there is a little bit of science behind it. By the way, if the asteroid does fall, they say that in less than a year, our planet of 7 billion people will be reduced to 1 billion. Water will be gone in two weeks. Fresh food, you know, potable food and fresh food will be gone in 30 days. And after that, it's survival of the fittest. And they talked about militias and gangs because there's no way to communicate. Electricity is down and gone. There's no way to, to refire that up because there's no energy to refire that up. The fuel is gone. The petroleum gone. The gasoline's gone. And it's just this incredible, incredible time. Anyway, so... I was depressed all day Thursday, to, uh, to say the least. So I want to come to Revelation chapter 10 and 11. We're at an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. If you'll remember between the sixth and seventh seal judgment, there was an interlude. There was an intermission. And I think this intermission or this interlude is very fitting because I think John... And the Holy Spirit realized that the people of God would need a chance to breathe just a little bit. To let it kind of absorb in. And so we're there. After an intense wrath, after the intense wrath of God is displayed, the Lord certainly knew we had to breathe. And so he gives us two visions, one in chapter 10, one in chapter 11. And he gives us four images. Now remember one of the ways to interpret or read the book of Revelation, anytime John gives you an image, you need to kind of look at that image in light of what he knows his 
times that he lived in, his audience he was writing to, and certainly his Bible that was readily available to him, particularly the Old Testament. And so the first vision is from Revelation chapter 10, and the second is from Revelation chapter 11. The first chapter, or the first vision is, let's look together. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to read the entire text and then just kind of put the screens up and down because we got a lot of turf to cover in about 30 minutes. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll and he, that he had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. Now that's respect. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. And the angel I saw standing on the sea and the land, raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath to the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay. And I believe every Christian in John's day went, amen. Finally. Amen. There's an end to this thing. Rome doesn't have the last word. Caesar doesn't have the final say-so. Domitian is not God. He said there will be no more delay. Then the seventh angel blows the trumpet. God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled and will happen just as has been announced to the servants and the prophets. Then the voice of the heavens spoke to me again. Go and take and open the scroll. Now, this is the second image. The first one is of the angel on the sea of the land. The second one is of the scroll. And then the voice of heaven spoke to me again. Go and take and open the scroll in the hand of the angels who's standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and took the scroll. And he said, yes, take it to eat, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will be sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll in my hand of the from the hand of the angels, and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, and when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So you have two pictures here. The first picture is of a mighty angel, and he's holding a little scroll. And then the scroll becomes the major player in the second picture. Uh, a mighty angel comes down from heaven surrounded by a cloud, no doubt indicating his heavenly status. And he's given a rainbow over his head, which most likely represents a cloud and, and a, or represents a crown. And matter of fact, it, it might have been one of those things that just kind of reflected, you know, the glory of, of God and his majesty and splendor. And, and, and it was a beautiful sight, no doubt to... John's audience, it reminded them, the rainbow did, of God's promise with Noah. And the promise with Noah was twofold, and it was that I'll never destroy the world again by water, and it was also I will never forget my people. And I will always have my people. And so, the imagery of the rainbow would suggest that Jesus is saying, no matter how bad it may seem, I will not forget about you. I got you back. 
And we're also told that his face, this angel, shined like fire, and his feet were like pillars of fire, with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. This mighty angel is enormous. Now, in John's day, the Greeks were huge into mythology, and all of their gods in mythology were huge. You never saw a tinier, puny god. And so maybe John is, and, and, and the voice is helping just tie. There's a demon flying here. It's in November, and we got one flying. It's zipping around my head. And so he's, he's just showing that he's a mighty angel. Now, you got to watch what happens here. His feet are like pillars of fire. Another allusion to the Old Testament where Jesus led the children of Israel from the exodus of Egypt out of Egypt into the promised land and he led them with a cloud by day and a fire by night for protection and guidance and direction. And so we have this feet like fire. And the size of the angel is enormous. He has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And that should remind John's readers to stand in awe of the God who made such a wonderful, wonderful creation. And that God is infinitely greater than his creation. By the way, just one word about angels. You understand angels do not procreate. So that means that angels are a unique creation of God. They're not put in a cookie cutter and they're unique creations of God. Every one of them. I don't know how many there are. Uh, there are just more than I think we could even imagine. They're unique, special creations from God. And so in verse 2, the angel has a small scroll. Now, the little scroll differs from the scroll that we see in chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, in chapter 5 and verse 1, that scroll is sealed. This scroll is not sealed. In chapter 5, that scroll is shut. This one is open. And then chapter 5, it's big. And in and, and chapter 10, it's, it's, it's small. And maybe this goes back and it's in the angel's hand. And you can go back, just reference Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 10. And you'll see a lot of the imagery connected to that text. Now... The idea here is that it's a little scroll, probably in the right hand. And so another way of expressing this clause, is, this phrase, is that he held a small unrolled scroll or paper document in his hand. Now, we don't know what was written on the scroll. I read quite a few pages of people trying to speculate what was on that scroll. The fact of the matter is, we don't know. And what we don't know, you have to be content with not knowing. You will read in just a moment where John hears the thunder. The angel makes a sound like a mighty lion, and, and the thunders reply, seven thunders. Well, my thought was that it would be another seven series of judgments. And the Bible says that after John heard it, saw it, he began to write it, and the voice said, don't write it. This is secret, not to be said again. And so there are some things I believe prophetically that are going to happen that we don't know about. And I'm okay with that. And the reason I'm okay with that is because no matter what happens, the Lamb of God is still on the throne in the very center of heaven. Amen? 
And that really is the bottom line of what I need to know. That my Savior is alive and well, ruling and reigning, no matter what I go through, no matter the good news on my best day or the worst news on my worst day, he is still on the throne. And I'm told what I need to know to be encouraged and walk by faith until that day when my faith comes be sight, when my faith becomes sight. So we don't know what was written on the scroll. This is my own take. Perhaps the unread scroll is part of the lamb, is, is that part of the lamb that sits on it, the part of the lamb's way of saying, I'm not going to give you every little detail. You've got to trust me. The main thing you need to know is I'm still on the throne. Well, the angel's voice then roars like a lion, and he sounded seven, and the sound of seven thunders answered him. And John heard the answer, and he started to write it down, talked about this just a second ago. And here's the point. Again, and I want to say it again, there are some things John saw which we were not allowed to read about, or maybe God just kind of nudged him to look over here and write this down, and, and, and not so much that. Things are not as they seem, and perhaps there is more to the end of history's story than is recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures. Matter of fact, I'm convinced that God's plan for the end time is more than can be contained in one book or even one collection of 66 books, but throughout the Bible we're given insight to that. Well, look at verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. The, the angel I saw standing on the sea and the land... Raised his right hand towards heaven, and he swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, the sea and everything in it. And he said, there will be no more delay if you have a Bible or you can highlight it on your smart Bible, phone, pad, whatever you got. Highlight that phrase. I think that is one of the crucial phrases in the entire book and of the Revelation. He said, basically saying, God will wait no longer. God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. Now, there's so much we don't know, and we get bogged down on speculation or sensationalism of, of what's not known. But here's what we know, that the redemptive work of Christ is come. Tribulation will escalate and intensify as the end draws near. A little return of Christ is coming. There will be judgment. Christ will reign, and eternity will begin. And you'll spend eternity in either heaven or hell. I'm telling you, when he said there is no more delay, you can take it to the bank that that is what's coming. Not what the guy's talking about on the prophecy club. <laughs> or even our doomsday scenario, as interesting as that was. Well, here's the good news for the people of God. The time of waiting is over, and that had to be of an encouragement to John's audience. To the seven churches of Asia to those who were being persecuted, 
to the families who had lost loved ones under persecution, who were in hiding. Remember, the, Jeru the Christians fled Jerusalem because they were fleeing persecution. And the gospel spread basically because the Jews and, and now then Christians and the Gentile Christians were fleeing persecution from Rome. And as they went, they kept telling the story of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose again on the third day, and he's coming back. And there was power in that message. And by the way, there's an interesting phrase here. And it talks about his mystery. His mystery. And there will be no more delay. When the angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. Here, mystery really stands for God's plan. It's yet unrevealed. You can see Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. But God's plan is to fulfill his purposes for humanity by the means of Jesus Christ. Beckwith defines this as follows. The purpose of God is to bring his kingdom to its consummation, a purpose hidden from the world, but in the end to be revealed fully in its accomplishment. So what's he saying? The mystery that is hidden will one day be revealed. Now, Paul would talk about the great mystery of the cross. And the great mystery of the cross is that a God would so love the world that Jew and Gentile, the nation of Israel and people who aren't, Part of the nation of Israel could all come to saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so the first picture in the first vision is of a mighty enormous angel who comforts the people of God with the message that the time of waiting is over and the plans of God and his judgment and his reign and his eternal places for his people and his eternal plan and his eternal place, heaven, for his people will be accomplished. Now the second picture is the little book. Now, the same voice that spoke in verse 4 is the same voice that speaks here. John's told to take and eat the scroll. He does. And what he's told is that when he eats it, it's going to be sweet, but then it's going to turn bitter and sour in his stomach. He eats it, and it does. All right? So the question is, what's the little scroll? What's the little scroll? Some think it's a message for the believing church that's described in Revelation chapter 11 through 13. Those holding this view believe that after the witnessing church has completed its testimony, the Christians will be put to death. These folks hold that just as the great scroll in Revelation 5 dealt with the destiny of all humanity, that this little scroll reveals the fate of the faithful believers during the final period of tribulation, of satanic uh, opposition. So it's sweet because God speaks eternal purpose to re uh, He speaks of His eternal purpose to redeem mankind, but it's bitter because it will be a time involved in fierce opposition and a time of a lot of sorrow. Other people believe that because John is relying heavily on the Old Testament. You can see Ezekiel chapter 2, especially verse 8. Ezekiel 2, verse 8 especially, is in view here. When Ezekiel swallowed the book, he was required to utter a lamentation and woes. He, he was to speak on behalf of God. 
for judgment that was coming. Therefore, this book, whatever it's contained in it, was meant for John to deliver. These folks believe that this is a more general message that John will deliver. He will deliver woes upon men under God's judgment for having rejected him, woes upon the Christians uh, in the hands of their, or woes upon the enemies of Christians who are persecuting them, woes upon a church in conflict with Roman power and woes upon Rome and her great destruction. I think I said some of that backwards, but you got the idea. The woes were always on the people in opposition against God's plan, purpose, and people. Perhaps it is a combination of all of these since he was to prophesy, as the Bible says, to many peoples, nations, lands, or languages, and kings. Now, I'm not saying I'm right, and I'm not saying... Uh, but I am saying tonight I've landed on the second view. It seems to me the second view would bring comfort to John's audience rather than to just a witnessing church. Well, now you come to the third picture. So you have the image of an angel with a scroll in his hand. Then you have an image of a little scroll and John eating the little scroll. Now you have probably... The second most debated chapter in the Bible. And this is where you got to give me a lot of grace. Then I was given a measuring stick. And I was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar. And count the number of worshipers, but do not measure the outer courtyard. For it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give them power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed clothed in burlap and will prophesy during a hundred or 1260 days these two prophets are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the lord of all the earth and if anyone tries to harm them fire flashes from their mouth and consumes them this is how anyone who tries to harm them must die they have no power to shut the sky so that the rain will fall for as long as they prophesy or so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy and they have power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth from every kind of plague as often as they wish and they complete when they complete their testimony the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them and he will conquer them and kill them and their bodies will lie in the main street of jerusalem the city that is figuratively called sodom and egypt and the city where the lord was crucified and for three and a half days all people's tribes languages and nations will stare at their bodies no one will be allowed to bury them all the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and man i can picture this today like never before and give presents to each other there is a party going on this is like christmas because the two witnesses have died something's been killed and death of the prophets who tormented them but after three and a half days god breathed life into them and they stood up terror struck all who were staring at them cnn cnn fox msnbc everybody started carrying this it was a live feed then they started spinning it and seeing what was happening terror struck all who were starting staring at them then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets come up here and they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched and at the same time there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city now let me tell you everything really kind of hinges on the first three verses you you really got to kind of define 
you know, a, a couple of things. Look at, I'll, I'll give you the three things I think you need to define. He was given a measuring stick, and I was told, go measure the temple of God. You got to decide what the temple of God is. Because at this point in time, there was no temple to measure. Jeru the temple in Jerusalem had not been built, or had been destroyed, and not been rebuilt. You could not measure the temple in the new Jerusalem because Revelation chapter 21 verse 22 says there's no temple in that city. So you got to think, okay, what is this temple of God? And then you got to decide what the 42 months are, the 1,260 days or the three and a half years. And then you have to decide what the two witnesses are. And when you get down to the end of verse 3, 4, then you're ready to kind of unpack the rest of Revelation chapter 11 on into verse tw chapter 12, 13 and 14. And it also gives you great insight to 18 and 19 as we conclude this book of Revelation. Now, I am not going to make my deadline, so let me just kind of kind of give this to you in a real quick way. Let's talk about who is the temple. What is the temple? Matter of fact, it's interesting to me that he's given a measuring stick and he's said, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers, but do not measure the outer courtyard. Boy, this goes back to the tabernacle and the Old Testament temple built in Jerusalem, the Gentile nations, uh, and any Gentile was free to gather in the temple, but they had to remain in the outer courts. The Jews were allowed to go deeper or into the inner courtyards of the, of the tabernacle or of the temple. And so what is this temple that John is being called to measure and to count? Uh, well... Again, anytime you have a number, you have to decide, is the number a statistic or is it symbolic? So is what John's measuring, is it a literal temple or is it symbolic of something that's rich in meaning? And so the temple is to be measured for care and preservation. That's why he's measuring it. Almost everybody agrees, no matter what side of the fence you fall on, almost everybody agrees that the measuring is for preservation and, and care. But who's to be preserved? Let me give you a premillennialist view. A premillennialist is somebody who believes the rapture comes before the tribulation, then after that, the second return of Christ, the thousand-year millennial reign, the judgment seat of earth, Satan loose for a season, the judgment of Christ, and then eternity begins with uh, heaven and hell. And so what they would hold is that the temple is the church, the people of God. They would cite 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 22. Excellent text. I think that you can tie in to, to, uh, to this topic of, of the church. To measure the temple means that God's people are going to be, the church is going to be protected from the coming catastrophes. Compared to the sealing of the seven in chapters 7 verses 1 through 8, this is saying that, hey, listen, 
not going to be necessarily insulated from them, but God's people are going to be protected. Now, again, the outer court is trampled under the foot, indicating that in another sense, the church is subject to severe opposition and suffering. How do these two fit together? And this is a premillennialist point of view. Larkin and others would hold to this. In the last days, the church would suffer persecutions, but it will be protected against the wrath of God directed at Satan, much like the children of Israel were protected in the land of Goshen when the plagues fell upon Egypt. The blood turned the water, not their blood. Locusts all over the land, not in their land. Frogs all over the land of Egypt, not in their land. All right, lice all over the land. You just start itching when you say lice. All over the land, but not in their land. And they will hold, the premillennials will hold, that in much the same way, God will protect his church uh, from spiritual danger, maybe not necessarily physical danger, and martyrdom, they will say, and I agree, and we would all agree, has always been a potential hazard of following Jesus Christ in a godless world. And you can amen that, right? But Satan cannot harm those who make a genuine commitment to Christ. An amillennialist would say, an amillennialist believes the cross and then persecution comes and it intensifies, intensifies, and intensifies. You have the return of Christ, judgment, the reign of Christ, eternity with with heaven and hell. A millennialist would hold that the temple refers to the belief that true spiritual Israel will always be protected and preserved by God in the trouble that lie ahead. They believe a great part of the Gentile world will suffer, Rome will suffer, and this is why the court of the Gentiles was not measured for protection, and this period of tribulation will will last 42 months, three and a half years, and in the ancient Near East, uh, Rome was kind of the the beast, and so a premillennialist would say, that it's deliverance, the temple is rep- realizing God's deliverance of the church in a future time from the tribulation. An amillennialist would say that it is the deliverance of God's people under their current situation and God's promise to protect them and to watch over them, not to insulate them, but to be their truth and their promise. And no matter what's coming. So where have I landed tonight? And I'm not saying I'm right. But the second vision, or the second interpretation, gives a little bit more, and I can see both, and if you, I'm not saying I'm right, believe me, I will change my mind after the next Doomsday episode, all right? I'm just simply saying, I think to John's original audience, The context and the usage of the Old Testament symbolism makes better sense that it's God's promise that not only will he protect the church in the future, but he protects the church in John's day today, and he protects the church in our day today, and a generation from now, he protects the church in that day today. Am I saying the church will never go through tribulation? Absolutely not. I've said it over and over. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. I am not going to counterman Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is that he is a friend that will never leave you nor forsake you. And no matter what you are facing, 
He is a strong and mighty God who can help you and will help you to overcome. So, the redemptive ministry of Christ tore down the artificial walls that separates people, black and white, rich and poor, those in power and those who don't have power. And many people from all nations, languages and kings now have equal access to Christ. And so I think the church is not just people who accept Christ after the cross. I think it's all people who believe in Christ from every nation and every tongue and every tribe. So I believe the temple is symbolic of all people who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I believe God has promised both Messianic Jews and the Christian church that there will be seasons of persecution and they will increase as we get closer to the end of time. But God's promises to protect us all spiritually, not guaranteeing us freedom from physical persecution or martyrdom, but he has promised to always be with us. And that's the good news. So now you got to decide what are the 100 and 1,260 days? What are the 42 months? What are the three and a half years? All right? So if you're not confused by the temple yet, hang on. I will thoroughly confuse you right here. You have to decide is 42 months a statistic or a symbol? And again, it's apocalyptic literature. Uh, those who would say it's a symbol, you know what the folks who say it's literal say that it's three and a half years of the tribulation. You know, there's three and a half years of peace, and then there's three and a half years of, of war and destruction, and this is what it's alluding to is the three and a half years. That's the easy one to understand. They say it's a statistic, and it's three and a half years. Then for those of those who would say it's symbolic, 42 months, 1,260 days, or three and a half years. By the way, this set of numbers repeats frequently in the Old Testament. 42 is the number of stages of Israel's journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. 42 is the length of time that it did not rain while Elijah was the prophet and while he was preaching on repentance. 42 is the generations from Abraham to the Messiah. 42 is also three and a half years is also 1,260 days. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, and in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 7, you find this phrase, a time and the times and a half a time. So if a time is a year and times is two years and a half a time would be a half a year, you have one plus two plus a half to get three and a half years. Is it a symbol or is it statistic? 42 represents the whole time the people or God are under attack, as we're told in this text, from the people of the nations. Three and a half or 40... Hang on just a minute. I can't read my own writing here. Let me just drop down. And so... Just kind of wrap it up. You know what the, the, the stat says? The symbolism would say that in the Old Testament, three and a half years is used as a number that is restless and denotes uncertainty. Well, I, I don't know using their proof text about the 
you know, 42 stages and the 42 generations. And the, I don't know if that proves that it's uncertain or restless. I'm just simply saying there's two ways to look at the number, either as a statistic or as a symbol, as a literal three and a half years, or is it inclusive of the church since persecution began until persecution ends? Is it a finite period of time, or is it symbolic as an indefinite period of time? And let me tell you where I've landed. I have not landed that plane yet. You can let me know what you think. I'm still confused. The final picture is of the two witnesses. Now you got to decide what the two witnesses are. Some people think the two witnesses are actually two people. Some people think that the two witnesses are actually two groups, say Israel and the church. And other people think that the two witnesses are two concepts, you know. And, and so you have to decide what the two witnesses are. Again, you have to kind of focus in on the word two. Is it a statistic? Is it a symbol? And I'll be honest, I don't know. I've studied this thing for like three days now. Uh, I've got a Logos Bible software, and I've got over 30 commentaries on the book of Revelation that I can pick up. And I read one, and it says one, and I go, oh, that sounds good. And I read another one, and I, that sounds good. And I run the references, and I go, oh, that sounds great. And that sounds good, and that sounds good. And maybe the truth is there's a little bit of truth from all three of them wrapped up in the meaning of the two witnesses. What a comfort to those who were suffering how this must have comforted John's readers. Jesus is on the throne. The first picture tells us he's not waiting any longer. His plans are in motion to bring his ultimate purposes to completion. The second picture of the little book reminds us that those who reject his son or oppress his people will be judged. The third presents God as protecting all the people during goods and bad times. And now those who are suffering have heroes on the scene. Two witnesses. Man, that's awesome. And this has been debated and debated and debated and debated. And those who interpret Re Revelation futuristically, like Largan, who's a tremendous scholar, see that this is literally two men. These two men will be witnesses to the end of the world. They have supernatural power. They have divine protection for a while. They will be killed by representatives of the Antichrist. And after three and a half literal days, will be brought back to life. And most people who hold this view believe that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Because Moses' body, nobody knows where he was buried. And Elijah was, was, was trans carried away in, to heaven. And some think it's Enoch and Elijah because he was walking with God. And God said, Enoch, we're closer to my house than we are yours. Let's go on home. The problem with this view, and this is the only problem I see with this view, is... And by the way, they all have problems. But it would not be very comforting to John's audience to realize that the promise of their deliverance would come 2,000 years plus in the future. Because obviously, if you hold to this view, the two witnesses haven't come yet. Well, if you're a dispensationalist premillennialist like Carol, who is a gifted scholar, then you believe that this is a vision of an apostate church during the dark times from the third century to the Reformation. And some of you are going, what? But if you are a dispensationalist, premillennialist, 
you believe that the seven churches of Asia represent the seven periods of church history from the cross to the present day. It's kind of uh, historic, historical prophecy. Now, and Carol holds that he basically interprets the day method of interpretation. There's the verse in Peter where it says a thousand years of the Lord is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. And so Carol says he takes the 1,260 days and he says that's the span of time from the end of the third century to the Reformation that totally encompasses the church age that we're talking about. The problem with this view, and they all have good things and they all have bad things, and this one has good things, but the problem with this view is Carol's day eight or day year method of interpretation is not consistently carried out by him or anyone else through the book of Revelation. I'm not saying that's a bad way to do it. He's certainly much more brilliant than I. I'm just saying it's not done anywhere else or a few other places in the book of Revelation. Then an amillennialist would hold the idea that the two men represent strength, that two are stronger than one. And the idea is that God's people are to share the message of God's plan of atonement and redemption to an unbelieving world. After all, this is the purpose of the church, the, publica to the publication and the sharing of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The strength and power of those two witnesses represent the militant spirit of true Christianity that says share the gospel and your testimony at all costs. They say the vision, divide, the vision divides itself up into three parts. Look at verses 4 through 6. I can't see if that's 4 through 6. We're just going to take a guess that, that it's not. In verses 4 through 6, note the two witnesses. They were possessed with divine power, could form miracles and in the material word and could bring bad on those who oppose them. And, and, and Amillennius would say that, uh, and Summers and others would say uh, that this was the time of the early church start and beginning when the early church first birthed and there were miracles all throughout the book of Acts and there were miracles and the church was just exploding in growth and souls being saved and they're saying this is like the two witnesses coming on the scene. The second part is verses 7 through 10 and it describes a time when a power arose that attempted to crush the presentation of the gospel and at the time of John's writing the book of Revelation Rome would have been able and was trying to crush Christianity and then celebrate their victory. Christianity was still in its infancy. They were a fledgling, fledgling congregations. Ten of the twelve apostles had been martyred. John banished to the island of Patmos. Tradition tells us that Thomas made his way to India and served in the southwest quadrant of India preaching the gospel. The beast then, come in, in verse 7, then represents Rome's emperors that they already called him by. And that put the, and they were called the beast because the Caesars put the Christians in the Roman Colosseum in front of the lions. It was Nero who dipped Christians in wax and burned them as, as street lamps on the main streets of Rome. It was Rome that beheaded the apostles and killed them, for the most part. 
And Caesar tried to destroy the church. And eventually, the third part comes there in verses 11 through 14 and shows that the restoration of life after three and a half days, which they believe is symbolic of an indefinite period of time, and basically saying the church endured troubles and trials and persecutions, but the strength of the church could not be put out. The flame of the church could not be put out. The lamp stem of the church going all the way back to Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 could not be extinguished because even though men have falls and failures, the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit cannot be extinguished. Now, if you're a first century believer, wouldn't that give you hope and encouragement? I think it would. So what do I believe these two witnesses are? I really think there's probably some truth of all of those wrapped up into who they are, but I can't give you any better explanation than to say here are three of the most predominant views, and you choose. But whichever one you choose, now you've got to be consistent with it through the rest of the chapter and through the rest of the Chapters 12, 13, and 14. So they're put to death. They awaken. Now let's drop down to verse 13. And at the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed its tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake. And everyone else was terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. And the second terror is past. That second terror would be the the, the first tear would be the seal judgments. The second tear would be the trumpet judgments. But the third tear is coming quickly. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpets and there was a loud voice shouting in heaven. And all of a sudden, you see this great worship service going on in heaven. Can I just tell you something about the worship service in heaven? It never quits. In fact, when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we are simply invited into the presence of one who is already being worshipped in the service by others. The, the four living beings, the 24 elders, the, the thousands and thousands of angels that are wrapped around the lamb who is seated on the, th- seated on the throne. And we are invited into that worship. It doesn't start with us and worship doesn't end with us. We are invited into the presence of God to unite with all of heaven and our other brothers and sisters on earth and giving praise and worship to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords, to the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world for your sins and mine who forgave us of our sins threw him as far as the east is from the west as far as the heavens are high above the earth and the good news is no matter what you're going through he is still on the throne amen let's pray father i totally messed up chapter 10 and 11